Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to the Extra Environmentalist Podcast. I'm Seth Moserkatz along with my co-host Justin Ritchie. Hey Seth, I can't believe we made it all the way to episode number two. It's uh, quite a milestone. It is quite a milestone. We are rolling right along. So uh, I heard you moved into a new place this weekend. Yeah, so actually I've been kind of working half days at UBC and in the mornings moving into the new place. It's over in a nice little neighborhood right next to the uh, forest lands that border the campus. I was just getting back from my first commute to the campus today so I can take the main bus line through town. It's the busiest bus line in North America, actually. It has over 100,000 trips a day on this single bus route. So it's an express bus. It runs really fast and everything. Uh, But it's really nice. It stops and it lets off next to bakeries and produce stands and everything. And I'm like, man, this is nice. You can definitely get used to living in in a high-density, livable community. Let's hear for public transit. Yeah, amazing. I think I might even ride my bike to UBC tomorrow. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and for anyone who's not familiar, UBC is... uh, University of British Columbia. How was the beach last weekend? Beach was awesome. I I won a free stay at a four-star hotel in Hilton Head, South Carolina, right next to the beach, and spent pretty much the whole time on the beach and around the pool drinking fruity drinks and living it up hardcore. South Carolina style. South Carolina style, you know, laid back. Exactly. So we have a jam-packed show today. We have a All blog kind of- post by uh, Joe Bajant. Great music on the on the show coming up for you today. We'll be bringing to you a whole bunch of podcasts that we found interesting. Some CBC stuff that I like, some School Sucks podcasts, Diet Soap, of course. Some excerpts from the Bike Cast and some stuff from a Tim Wallace Murphy book that Justin's reading. I, I'm going to make it a point that when we record for this podcast definitely whatever book i'm reading i'm just going to take an interesting excerpt out and include it like we did last week with the book on artificial light on that note let's uh, (laughs) jump right into the podcast Plains of the asphalt jungle. 
home to many creatures great and small, and the popping ground for one of the most clever and illustrious creatures, the plastic bag. Today we explore the cycle of life for this curious creature, the plastic bag, on its migration to its home, the Pacific Ocean. Once released into the wild, the plastic bag is unsure of itself. It falters at first, but soon, with some help from the wind, the bag will be airborne. This flight will be the first in its long journey towards its final destination, the garbage patch in the heart of the Pacific Ocean. In this world of perpetual war, almost, um, what separates the good guys from the bad guys? If you give people the option to be at rest, the good guys say thank you, and the bad guys say no, I won't accept it. I won't accept the status quo. If you went to the different kind of jihadis running around and say, we will stop using violence against you and you stop against us, they will say, no, sorry, it's our religious duty to use violence. And we have to use the sword until the infidel surrenders to Islam and accepts the truth of Islam. It's our duty to do it. Not the essence of that, not their character, not whether they're nice people. It's whether they accept to stop. So that wars, especially civil wars or any wars, exhaust themselves like forest fires. Yes, right? well, you have to give war a chance to do its job. War is not a nice thing, and war isn't cheap. Its only justification is that war burns the resources, burns the capability, destroys the mad hopes and foolish ambitions that cause the war. War brings peace by removing the factors that caused the war. If you interrupt it with a ceasefire imposed from outside and you send in your peacekeepers with their baby blue UN helmets and so on, you have interrupted the process that if left to continue, might have brought peace. The people fighting for Canada today in Afghanistan are volunteers. Right. All the American troops are volunteers. Now, if war was not attractive, people would not volunteer for it. War is infinitely attractive. Men love war, and they always have, and if they hadn't, they wouldn't have had wars. The notion that wars are fought by slaves commanded by potentates is simply wrong. All right, so this last article here is a blog post by cultural commentator Joe Bajant. He has a new book coming out in a few months, Rainbow Pie. It's just about the systemic culture of uh, kind of creating an underclass in the United States. And so the, the excerpt, I wanted, excerpt I wanted to read here is really prescient because, as we talk about a lot, Seth, uh, the political discussion in the United States is uh, typically centered on either conservative or liberal or Democrat or Republican, etc. So he, he has an interesting piece of commentary there. Most educated American liberals believe simply being progressive makes them, by default, the nation's saviors, 
morally and intellectually right in all things. As proof, they read more and allegedly are more open-minded than most conservatives, except when it comes to their daughters dating a redneck named Ernest, who lives in a trailer court behind a strip mall. They are certainly among the educated class in a country known for its lousy schools and a dull and sated unquestioning public. Education and access to education are now our fundamental class delineators. Higher education is now for the privileged, and that privilege, almost regardless of profession or career, is a future that depends on government, liberal or conservative. It matters little. In fact, this privileged class votes Democratic more predictably than the working class, Hispanics or blacks. So when educated liberals look up from their copy of The Nation or The Jon Stewart Show, they behold this chilling sight. Beefy mobs waving tea bags and demanding tax cuts to help pay for new schools and bridges. Sarah Palin emerging from the ashes of the McCain campaign to become the high priestess of the uncurried tribes, with a Mormon named Glenn Beck exhorting millions of fundamentalists to seize the country. They feel that something has gone terribly wrong. Immediately they conclude that it is the American people's fault through their backwardness, incomprehension, and misdirected anger, and that maybe it, it serves them right for not rallying behind the flying progressive standards. I've been plenty guilty of this myself over the years, and I'm now a recovering American liberal, well on my way not to conservatism, but towards strumpetocracy, government by strumpets. It's a real word. Google it. And, and strumpet means prostitute, by the way. I googled it. Not that the progressive flag was actually flying. American liberals threw down their standard 40 years ago in the rush for comfortable technical teaching and administrative jobs in government, universities, and nonprofits. Ah, uh, yes, they wailed. The people have let us down. They are absolutely disgusting. Liberals agreed. And they still agree. Read the comments on the Huffington Post or the Daily Coast. Or look at the arrogance of Barack Obama's characterization of American heartlanders clinging to gods and guns, which we do. However implicit in his statement was that both God and guns are indicators of an ignorant loser class. When opponents scalded him for his remarks, he justified them by pointing out he had said what everybody knows is true, meaning everybody in his class, the educated liberal class. Hard to believe their predecessors were the point men and women for the Scopes trial, the eight-hour day, unions, anti-McCarthyism, Cesar Chavez, and Negro civil rights. Gotta love the class system. I mean, I could definitely see how a lot of... Uh, self-proclaimed liberals would find that piece offensive. But I think it brings up some good points how the United States is incredibly divided and a vast portion of it identifies quite heavily with the stereotypes of the George Bush era and the God and guns. And then on the other hand, you have a class that thinks it's progressive, uh, but as Joe Bajan is saying, really just hides behind uh, the same kind of uh, grouping around uh, common ideas and rarely ventures out from that. I was listening to Neil Kramer on the Diet Soap podcast recently, and he was talking about how accents in, in the UK really define your class. Like you can have a really posh accent and you know automatically that they're from a higher class. You know, very often people say, are you Scottish? Are you Australian? You know, where are you from? So I think the UK accent is is typically defined and typified by um, London, essentially, which is a different uh, dialect to 250 miles north of that in uh, Manchester or Liverpool or Leeds. So yeah, that's that's been amusing. So I've had to um, speak a little bit more clearly. I remember the Beatles song, It's Only a Northern Song, which uh, talks about the divide uh, there between London and the north and uh, there's also a class divide there as well. 
right? There is, there is yeah. Um, there is a class system in, in the UK, and although it's changed in its expression and its manifestation, there is a working class and a middle class and a, an upper middle class and an upper class. And most people you encounter, you can place them rightly or wrongly into one of those categories, and that's much less evident here. Um, you do have you know, blue-collar and white-collar um, expressions of life here, which can be mapped onto those uh, definitions in English terms, but it, it's, it's kind of less evident. In, in England, in the UK, you can know what someone's status is, what their class status is, just by them opening their mouth and talking, right? I mean... Uh, to, well, to, to, some, to some extent, that's true, yes, but... Um, but, I mean, you have, a, you have different kinds of British accent and some, somewhat the, that reflects class distinctions, right? You've got that posh... British accent, uh, and I don't. And wh- wh- how would you describe your northern accent? Is it a working class accent? Yeah, yes, it is. Um, I mean, I probably come from a, a a family that was working class a few generations ago that moved to middle class through decisions and education and jobs and types of jobs and so on. And it's, it's all very vague, really. Um, but it's it's harder to detect in the UK now because you know some of the smartest, coolest people I've ever met have really rough local dialects which i love i love language and i love dialects so i i adore that kind of diversity in language it's not as easy to detect i mean in the 1950s on english television you couldn't really announce news or be a, a program link person or an anchorman without having this this thing called you know the re- sort of queen's english received pronunciation which is like, hello and welcome to the BBC. You are listening to Diet Soap with Douglas Lane and Neil Kramer. Yay! And that's English. That's that's English for a lot of people. You do that really well, uh, though. You should you should do that all the time. I think your career would skyrocket. Yeah. It's great. Well, when I go to, when I go to McDonald's, I have to do that so I get the right stuff. You know, although going to McDonald's is is a terrible sin, I perhaps, perhaps shouldn't admit that. First seem an idyllic place for the plastic bag, but danger lurks round every corner. Here it will encounter many enemies, including one of the most dangerous, park services. Poor little fellow. Looks like his journey ends here. Meanwhile, our little bag has encountered one of nature's most deadly killers the teacup Yorkie. Once the Yorkie has locked onto its victim, there's very little hope of survival. But using its superior size and deft maneuvering, our bag manages to escape the Yorkie's talons and flee for its life. The United States is facing an epidemic of homelessness. Illegal encampments are springing up across the country. It's like a sprawling tent city. I can see dozens and dozens of tents. Many are victims of the economic downturn. Forced into jobs that pay so little, they've lost their homes. How does it feel, a man like you being homeless? It doesn't feel very good, I can tell you that. 
we found a country where the poor expect and receive little help from their government. As the police crack down, some even face jail for having no roof over their head. You're criminalizing somebody for not having nowhere to go. parties in America, Republicans and Democrats, appear to be different things. Now, they target, most importantly, different groups to tell their lies to in order to get elected. That's primary. But they also appear to stand for different things and have different agendas. But the truth is, when it comes to freedom, both parties work in tandem against it. Both parties are glaring hypocrisies. Republicans claim to stand for economic freedom, lower taxes, less business regulation, freer markets, which is kind of humorous, but the trade-off for that freedom would be that you need to live your life by a very rigid set of social standards. You can't choose what to put in and take out of your own body. They're very law and order oriented. They believe in throwing non-violent people in jail for drug offenses. So you have one side freedom and one side oppression. The Democrats are the opposite. They believe in civil liberties, like being able to make your own choices about what you do with your body, what you put in your body, what you believe. But the trade-off is the tiptoe towards more control over the economy, higher taxes, more socialization and centralization over certain services. Now, when each group gets into power, something unfortunate always seems to happen. Despite all their wonderful platitudes about freedom, the only tool that they have at their disposal is force. So their agenda becomes getting more of the force side than the freedom side. So we just watched eight years of George Bush, who did virtually nothing for economic freedom, but did so much in the way of the Patriot Act and the Military Commissions Act and the Defense Authorization Act against civil liberties. Now we have Barack Obama, who's not going to reverse the anti-civil liberties agenda of George Bush, he's going to ratchet up the economic oppression. And it just goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And this really explains precisely why the American people lost so much freedom during the 20th century and really beyond. The other thing that Obama will do that we can watch is he's not going to surrender power that George Bush consolidated for him, just like George Bush was not going to surrender power that Bill Clinton consolidated for him. All they ever do is figure out how to use that power that somebody else got for them to help their friends 
and punish their enemies. I heard one of the hosts of a radio talk program that I'm quite fond of, Free Talk Live, Sam Dodson, say one day, who's the worst president of all time? The current one. Because whoever that is has all of the power that all of the other presidents that came before him have taken, which makes him the most dangerous person to have ever held that office. What would you tell a young person who is about to go into college in the next few weeks so that they don't fall into debt uh, by, okay. by uh, predatory lenders who don't want borrow. to take advantage of them? Just try not to borrow anything. Live within your means. And, uh, you know, do get a job. It doesn't hurt. You get, it doesn't harm your grades. Get a part-time job while you're in school. Uh, but you have to learn. And you have to stop believing everything you hear. First, the first thing you, I want them to stop believing is that their government is no good and hopeless because that hits them in a big way from a lot of different angles. First thing I want them to understand is that there are absolutely wonderful elements in our government working hard to change it and to fix it. They're alongside a lot of pigs and jerks and bad people, evil ones and crazy ones and so on. But the good ones are in there. And you don't disrespect that tremendous sacrifice or that tremendous gift that they're giving us by combining and pretending or thinking of them as all bad. That is destructive. The LaRussis love that. Other groups... Uh, that are trying to undermine our our uh, society love that you don't buy into that uh, the, the government and society is evil don't do that the society ultimately is a reflection of us and we have to improve to the point where where we understand our responsibilities toward the society toward one another toward the truth and then those kids have a chance of moving forward. They have a chance of accomplishing something. I'm in transit I'm stranded on this boat And I pledge myself allegiance to a better night's sleep at home So, Justin, what, what are you reading these days? Uh, so, I've been reading through Hidden Wisdom, The Secrets of the Western Esoteric Tradition by Tim Wallace Murphy. It has a nice blurb from Graham Hancock here on the cover. So, it's basically about history of the Western uh, esoteric traditions, how Tim Wallace Murphy traces it, a lot of it back to Egypt, and then carried out of Egypt by the typical biblical story of the Exodus, and then how uh, essentially much of that history has been covered up and then glossed over by modern Christianity. And then the Catholic Church has then uh, enforced uh, an oppression on those ideas by force. And so in this one section on uh, the crusade against fellow Christians, uh, one Spanish priest was saying, for years now, I have brought you words of peace. I have preached, I have implored, I have wept. But as the common people say in Spain, if a blessing will not work, then it must be the stick. Now we shall stir up princes and bishops against you, and they, 
alas, will call together nations and peoples, and many will perish by the sword. Towers will be destroyed, walls overturned, and you will be reduced to slavery. Thus force will prevail where gentleness has failed. And so that that's, uh, you know, the church, you know, supposedly this pious organization, like speaking out about this organization called the Cathars, who were extremely successful in forming communities around the ideas of Gnosticism in, say, say about the year 1000 to 1200 CE. And basically, a lot of the Gnostic history that was preserved up through the time of Jesus, as Tim Lawless Murphy is arguing in this book, was actually maintained by Cathar society. And the Cathars had these communities that were in direct defiance to the Catholic Church, and they were so successful economically uh, and in gaining converts because everyone wanted to live in the society where women were equal and where you had the freedom to explore things academically versus the extreme oppression of the Catholic Church, that it was an affront to the Catholic Church. And so the Catholic Church's only solution was to go in and kill all of them. And so that's what they did. And that's why you had people like Spanish priests and you had the Pope going in and starting the office of the Inquisition and just doing these horrible, horrible things in the name of Jesus. But the real travesty is not not even just the human suffering that it incurred, but erasing that true history of spiritual enlightenment. Now, I know when when Christianity was moving across Europe, a lot of the native cultures and religions were incorporated into the Christianity religion. Was was it any of that happening during that time as well? The, a lot of that happened in the centuries beforehand, when the Catholic Church uh, accepted in the, the deities of the native tribes and made them part of the Catholic Church itself. But what was new here is that the Catholic Church was actually going out and killing what they labeled as heretical. Yeah, so this is Christians attacking other people who supposedly practice a spiritual tradition of Christianity in the name of Christ. So uh, even though the quote-unquote Christianity of the Cathars and the Gnostics was much more expansive than just uh, the typical Bible story of the Catholic Church, Catholics were going in and killing other Christians in the name of Christ. And that's what made this time in history uh, unique. This uh, this section in the book continues uh, to say that thousands and thousands of uh, of people, peasants across Europe, uh, were spurred to action by speeches like this one that I read from uh, a minute ago by the Spanish priest, um, and they because of their new right within the church to dispossess the heretics of all their possessions. Um, and so the new, quote-unquote, holy warriors uh, set out and took over castles and land and looted, and they raped and murdered and essentially committed genocide. And there's some really graphic, horrible descriptions of, of what happened. I'm not sure if I could, should go into it or not, but one of the more, I guess you could say, lighter elements of the, the Inquisition is that 80 knights were, were hung, but the hastily erected gallows by the Inquisitors were, were so poorly made that they actually collapsed, and so the, the knights uh, weren't hung. So I, I just imagine the scene where, you know, this angry priest is like, build the gallows, and he builds up these gallows and then they put knights on them and the knights are so heavy that the whole gallows collapse and they don't actually get hung. So saying something like, God has chosen these men to die because they're not Catholic. Bring on the ropes. Exactly. And it, it just 
they just break and it's like no and everyone's <laughs> like god has chosen these people to live <laughs> right yeah and and there's other horrible things how like the the priests would go and uh you know like torture people after they would capture them and it's pretty horrible and i actually you know i always knew the inquisition was bad and i knew that it occurred but i didn't realize that it was such a an absolute travesty uh in human history and they describe what the iron maiden is like yeah yeah i I don't really want to talk about a lot of that because it's it's quite terrible (laughs) well how you can how you uh when they draw and quarter people yeah well that and the gouging of the eyes and and all that The, the severing of the genitals yes it's it's quite intense. Uh, but basically the point is that uh, – the point of this book is that uh, throughout history uh, – and I, I think in, in modern times now, we are incredibly uh, polarized when it comes to talking about religion. And it's either like – you know, I'm – especially in the United States, you know, I'm either a, a whole hog Christian and, you know, I love Jesus or whatever I'm saying. Or, you know, you're an atheist and, and – or like a very – uh, militant atheist, and there's a lot of people who lie in between in the spectrum. But at least in the public space, those are the two debates, and most people aren't willing to consider that there's a far more expansive notion of of spiritual history that uh, has existed uh, for humanity, but we haven't really engaged with that. Hey, you! It's me, <laughs> Sarah Silverman. You know, lately I've noticed a lot of really sad, really long commercials on TV with like grossy, sick, emaciated people from all over the world. And it turns out they look that way because they don't have food. And I know what you're thinking. If you don't like it, Silverman, TiVo passed it. I did. You still see them. Especially because like I have a 48 inch plasma high def TV. So every devastating image is in like brilliant crisp, vivid, like it, like they're in my apartment, you know. So how do I get these people out of my apartment, basically? And I think I figured it out, like all I have to do is end world hunger. And then I'm like, okay, how are you gonna end world hunger? And then it hit me, sell the Vatican feed the world. Think about it, we need a hero, and who is more primed to be our hero than the Pope? He's literally a caped crusader. What is the Vatican worth, like 500 billion dollars? This is great, sell the Vatican, take a big chunk of that money, build a gorgeous condominium for you and all of your friends to live in, all the amenities, swimming pool, tennis court, water slide. And with the money left over, feed the whole fucking world. You preach to live humbly, and I totally agree. So now maybe it's time for you to move out of your house that is a city. On an ego level alone, you will be the biggest hero in the history of ever. And by the way, any involvement in the Holocaust, bygones. I know some of you out there are like, well, why don't those bums get a job like the rest of us? Well, did you know that the average Arby's employee in Ethiopia only gets paid nothing an hour because they don't... They don't have one. They don't have one. The bottom line is this. If you sell the Vatican and you take that money and you use it to feed every single human being on the planet, you will get 
crazy pussy. All the pussy. And I don't mean literally. That might not be your cup of tea. I don't know what your version of all the pussy is. But you'll get all the pussy. Over the course of its miraculous migration, the plastic bag will cover vast distances through neighborhoods, across parks, and down city streets. It is now nightfall, and our highly advanced night vision cameras have managed to capture for the first time in history a plastic bag in pitch black. Phenomenal. Southern Baptist Church. Yeah. The church that I went to frequently as a child is just across the street here. Yeah. Don't really consider myself a Christian anymore. Right. I went through a phase of sort of evangelical atheism, but abandoned that in my you know late teens, early twenties. That seems really shallow and kind of petty. And there is a lot of I. A lot of the audience listening to this will certainly not identify themselves as Christian, and will probably feel rather antagonistic when you mention groups of people that you identify as fundamentalist Christians. Yeah. There's somebody else who's uh, an interview in the book here. His name's James Howard Kunstler, and he wrote The Long Emergency. And uh, he's also got, he writes novels, and he's started writing a series of novels that takes place in a post-petroleum America. And James Howard Kunstler is a secular Jew, but he recognizes that in a post-petroleum environment, a central organizing feature, yes. dynamic, of the community is going to be the church. And it just seems to me that the, the antagonism that is directed by self-identified intellectuals or progressives or you know, however they identify themselves towards Christians is certainly not helping anybody. And I wonder what role you see for churches and uh, sort of social networks that they enable in the coming years. Right. Um, one of the extremely unfortunate aspects of free market capitalism is that it separates economics from justice and mercy. For economics to... Uh, be sustaining for every player in the value chain and the supply chain. There has to be justice along that, that line. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said that we have to pity the poor capitalist because he has to decide how much to feed the worker so that he has the strength to do the work. Uh, that is the dilemma of, the, of, of free market capitalism. The only way that we can um, fundamentally intervene on that is through some organizing, central organizing entity that helps us sort out moral and ethical issues 
around justice, around mercy. When I talk about justice, I'm talking about a just society. What I can um, uh, tell you uh, how rural people feel is that most of the um, uh, sustainable agricultural advocates uh, that make the news, that uh, are in the papers, that write the books, um, don't have a clue what sustainability is. That they are, in fact, elitists. When you talk to small farmers in Berryville, Arkansas, or anywhere around, when we talk about sustainability, what we talk about is, how can I make a living farming? How can I make a living as a small farmer? And if you talk to farmers like Patrice Gross, who runs Foundation Farms, or a local man named John Toombs, who, who runs Homestead Farms, or Little Portion Monastery that markets about 12,000 free-range chickens every year. The preeminent issue is, can I make enough to keep on doing what I'm doing? The only way that they will be able to keep on doing what they're doing is if people and by people I'm talking about consumers will make the ethical and the moral choice uh, between buying products from Walmart or some other big box or buying it locally from a small, either directly from a producer or from a small venue. Where do those moral and ethical uh, rationales come from. They certainly don't come from our public school system. Uh, children today are not educated to engage in higher level moral reasoning. Many people in the United States I don't know the percentage don't go to college and they're not exposed to these ideas about moral and ethical reasoning and rationales. How do you engage in moral, moral things? Spread the word all over town Kicking, screaming like I'll drown Can't you see I'm falling? I want you, do you want me? What's it take to make you see? Like a bomb that's ticking endlessly can't you hear me calling? Any new party that's going to fix things has to come about with a laser-like focus over a couple subjects that almost everyone can agree with. How about a party that exists to change the corrupt ways of Washington? A clean party. And that's what I'd call it. Forget these political names that don't mean anything to most people. Walk around to somebody and say, listen, I'd like you to join the Whig party. What does that mean? 
I'd like you to join the clean party. And you're already, you know, when you have an adjective in the name itself, I think that's a pretty good thing. And I think what it does is say, look, we're not about anything but this one issue. The one issue is we're going to government to tell on it. We're going to be a snitch. We're going to expose everything. We're going to be a pain in the rear to all those other politicians because this is all we care about. We're being elected for one purpose only, and that's to expose to you how bad it is and what's going on and thereby create a climate where these people feel compelled in D.C. to enact you know, the kinds of to change their conception of where the corruption line is. Let's put it that way. I want a group that can be elected and can elect several people into office whose job it is to shame the people we have there into adopting a more strict ethical code of conduct. And I don't think that's too unreasonable. I'm a pessimist, as you know. But there are still things that are possible. These things that are possible are inversely proportional to how bad times get, right? And times are getting pretty bad, so we have a chance for reform here. And a group has to go into D.C. and and create parties in all the states and elect people at several different levels with one job in mind, or it's going to get co-opted and you're going to start losing the support of various people. We could all support a clean party, folks, especially if we thought that they really were just going to go there and tell on government. They're just going to stand up and when it's their turn to enter something in the congressional record, right, the public record, they're not going to do what some lobbying firm wants them to do and to enter into the congressional record some speech that the lobbyists gave them. They're going to get up there when it's their turn and say, I'd like to enter into the congressional record that my esteemed colleague from the Republican Party from the state of blah, 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 took uh, $71 million over the last four years from this very company who just asked him to say that speech. He just And by the way, the Democratic speech was written by this lobbying firm. I saw it, blah, blah, blah. And they came up to me and tried to you know get me to vote there you know tell on them snitch somebody who will peel the curtain back showing us the little wizened man behind the wizard of oz we need a spy in government for us somebody who's not representing a democratic or republican issue someone who's just going to expose all the corruption and we need a bunch of them imagine a mere four or five clean party members in the Congress. Every one of them a loud mouth. You know, Ben, I am, you know, funny how this works out, but I am the prototype for my idea of a clean party member, but I'm not running, so don't ask. You don't want me in government, trust me. But you might like people as loud and obnoxious as yours truly, because can you imagine a bunch of loud mouths in there screaming about every little thing they find that those Democrats and Republicans are hoping you don't find out about? They're going to be... um outcasts they're not going to work with the majority or the minority they're not going to be liked they're not going to be invited on junkets they're not going to be allowed to sit in the lunchroom next to these people because they're going to be the snitches our snitches and we need some people working for us in government and you democrats know out there that you and i are not going to agree on a candidate and you republicans out there know that you and i are not going to agree on a candidate and you democrats and republicans aren't going to agree on a candidate unless that candidate is about something we agree upon sorry to sound so obvious Do you want someone to go to government and fight the corruption? I think you do. We just agreed on a candidate. Well, a party. Now we need a candidate to fill those, you know, shoes. Now, am I, is this a panacea? Ben, I need to, you know, point out my pessimistic credentials. I don't think any of this stuff solves all of our problems. I'm not, 
you know, a, a utopianist. I don't I don't think we have the answers and the magic golden key that's going to unlock, you know, all of the bad things in our system and create, you know, a wonderful new world with unicorns and flying dragons and all that stuff. I don't believe that stuff. I'm just looking at a system that is locked. How often do we talk about this? We Frozen shoulder show we did. Told you, it's, it's a locked up system. It's calcified. It's not movable. And it's working for people that aren't us. How do you break that stranglehold? I think you need to do it with people who represent us in the system. If those people aren't Republicans and they aren't Democrats, they have to be someone else. And what the heck are we all going to agree you know, on platform-wise? We're not going to be a bunch of Whigs. Some segment of you might be Whigs, some segment of you might be Libertarians, some segment of you might be Greens, but we're all anti-corruption. It's time we start electing people that promise to go to Washington and tell on those people. The people snitch. Careful to avoid the mouths of hungry sea life that feed on the helpless plastic, the bag will travel hundreds of miles to join the thriving community of plastic known as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. The Garbage Patch is a veritable plastic oasis where millions of tons of plastic garbage remain trapped by the currents. It is said to be twice the size of Texas. Never actually biodegrading, here the plastic bag can live indefinitely, peacefully coexisting with billions of other petroleum species before breaking into ever tinier plastic pieces, thus completing the plastic cycle of life. In your novel, Supercenter, it seems to me likely that the, the Walmart that, that the characters are going to live inside might be a little different than what we're used to in, in everyday life. What are some of the fantastical elements? People have to live on the shelves. They have to climb up above the uh, merchandise and the, the staples and the widgets, and they, lay, and they climb in behind their curtain, and there they have their bunk. They don't live like in the uh, bedding department or something. They... They live, there's like certain shelves designated for the shoppers. That's right. That's right. And there's, of course, going to be a, a hierarchy of neighborhoods, too. You know, if you're living in the down the center aisle, you're sort of part of the, the elite class of uh, managers. And then from there, it kind of um, winds down to sort of the, um, the ghetto on the far end of the store, which is where the sort of uh, cast, cast off people that aren't really participant in the society go. And there we see um, sort of the roots of um, anarchy starting to take hold, where people are a little disillusioned with this culture that they've been asked to accept. Can you get like a pillow or is a just lying on that metal shelf no matter what your status is? Um, well, if you're, you've got a, a, usually a sleeping bag and a mattress. Uh, most of the, of the people that live there are children because they've, that's all they're interested in bringing in and, and exporting out is well-trained uh, military recruits. So uh, the adults have beds and they have little apartments um, that are sort of shut off. No one really knows what's inside of them, but they're nicer. Okay. And so the adults are people who are working for Walmart. Are, are, are the... Are the kids considered employees or, or shoppers or both? There's no such thing as an employee, and that's true today of Walmart. They're associates, and an associate is somebody who is partnered, and uh, when you're off duty, you're just off duty. So sort of you keep, you keep your hours, you know you're at work, but when you're off work, you, you can start loading up your shopping cart and grabbing yourself some uh, some food. Of course, there's not as much food available because, you know, due to the restrictions, you can't really have, you know, stoves and cooking and all that. So everything's mostly packaged breakfast cereals and 
types of uh, snacks and cookies and crackers, and it's, that's what people have to subsist on. In your superstores, are there regular everyday shoppers that come and go as as well as this army of associates or or are the are the associates the only uh shop they're the only shoppers um due to the circumstances beyond their control uh they've had to go ahead and and seal off the doors and kind of weld them shut so there's only one way in and out and that's through the uh that's through the the military service you're you're in there for life so well that's very interesting um and who's the main character in this story? He's a, a recruit who is um, talented enough to earn sponsorship. So his name is GE. His name is General Electric. His little sister is named Nestle. Uh, and uh, he is very talented at uh, these, these video games, which are, are played you know, on big screen TVs with real uh, M16 rifles that have just been converted to, to shoot you know, laser beams. They've been converted to work with a video game system. And with those, uh, they, they compete um, over uh, a, net, a web, a network across the country with other stores. And only the, the, the top performers have the opportunity to leave. And so when you once a year, if you qualify, um, they're, they're taken into a special room where there's a, a rocket, uh, a big rocket ship. And it's made out of um, fiberglass, but that's okay. The kids don't know any better. And you get on that, and that rocket ship takes you away to a faraway planet where you have to fight a very serious war, a war, a war of ideologies, a war against primitivism. And it's, uh, it's either us or them. You know, it's, we got to convert them. We got to teach them the, the, the glories of democracy and the glories of capitalism. And, and this is a very serious war. And so the, the kids, they get on aboard the ship, and they get a, uh, a beautiful um, tour of the stars. And then they get let out the other side, and they see for the first time in their lives the uh, the world outside the store. And they were handed a gun and said, "Let's go fight." So, why did you have the uh, associates actually have to leave the store in, in order to fight? Because you know now we've got these people who are, who are seventeen, eighteen years old going into the air force, getting taken down into basements like somewhere in Idaho, and they're actually piloting drones in Pakistan or Afghanistan and killing people from their video game consoles. So you, I guess the guess the reason why is because when I first had the idea for the novel, had I done that, people would have found it unbelievable. That's one of those examples of how, you know, tomorrow's uh, headlines outstrip today's satire. I think it would also, it, it, it makes for an, uh, giving them the ability, you know, you want your character to go somewhere. You, you want that moment of, of transportation there, that, that the rocket blasting off, the beauty of the stars, the alien world. You want to be able to write about all those things. And so it's kind of – it would be too dreary maybe to keep them in the superstore the whole time. But in fact, you could have these guys fighting, the, you know, never know when they're being trained and when they're actually fighting and maybe there isn't a difference. It speaks to the fact that war is very depersonalized though, that these kids are being trained just as, you know, kids are being trained today. And this is something that will probably find its way on my blog soon. But um, the U.S. military is setting up all sorts of little um, expos and little video game fairs. I don't know. They'll fill up a whole building with consoles and computers and they'll invite kids to come. And, you know, it's definitely not a recruiting event. We're just offering them free first person shooter games. Nobody has to sign up. It's completely uh, altruistic, you know. So these things are taking place right now. And kids, uh, they love these games. You know, they love these shooting games. And it's, it's, it's no hard feelings. You know, there's no blood, there's no death. 
Um, and that's what that's what I'm trying to speak to the point of is that when you cultivate a, a militaristic attitude and you and you can somehow detach the the true horrors of war from it, well, you can you can get a lot of people on board with that until, of course, the inevitable happens and they have to face the horrors of war. But between that and you know the other, you definitely can convince people it's a it's a great time. You know these these drone pilots, these predator drone pilots are using. You know, like PlayStation Two joysticks. I mean, I'm not. Sure. I'm maybe not literally PlayStation Two joysticks, but they're using uh, interfaces that are based on game consoles because they, the Air Force discovered that it was they were more successful when they modeled their controls uh, on video game systems um, for a variety of reasons. One is that the the pilots were already familiar with these interfaces, and two. Because the, the game system companies had already worked pretty hard at developing a really good interface, so they didn't need to improve upon it too much. But um, so, do you remember the the movie The Last Starfighter, so where the guy's playing the game and the alien comes down and says, "Oh, we've been training you all along." Well, that seems like a little bit of uh, predictive programming uh, to me. That movie, because that's literally what the government's doing, and of course, that's what Walmart's doing now. And in, in your, or, sorry. The super center. It didn't. Occur, yeah, the super center, and it didn't occur to me how much I was borrowing from the premise of that movie because it sort of happened organically um, as I was writing it. But it is true, and it, it seems to me like it's only a matter of time, and there'll be very little objection before the Air Force says, "Hey, you know, we've got this budget, we've got these billions of dollars, and you know, these these guys, they're, they're not coming out of their caves long enough for us to drop, you know, sixty thousand dollar rockets on them." So here you go, um, America. We've created this joystick for you, you know, and, and it's just it's very surreptitious, you know, but I, I really see that being the next step for the military is just kind of creating a um, a partnership because they've definitely done it with the film industry. And you can make lots of examples of this, but no more blatant example is there than um, what Michael Bay has done. And you pick any movie, but I, I had watched transformers for the first time somehow was convinced to sit down and watch this this uh, spectacle and he was it was like are you kidding me this isn't even a movie about robots this is a movie about being a soldier this is a, a movie about the selflessness and the sort of um cooperation and the cooperativeness of every little cog in it so who really took down the transformers in that movie was the army you know and the army's you show all these displays of bravery and all this and i said to myself this is so heavy-handed. There's got to be something here. And I get online, and it turns out it was. Michael Bay's very proud of the partnership he struck up with the military, and this is the military's biggest collaborative effort they've ever done with a film. And, and um, you know, pat him on the back, slap him a high five uh, for, for being so nice to provide all this information to, to Michael Bay. But, you know, it's clearly – it doesn't take a um, – a dark cigar smoked filled room of, of conspirators to think this up. I mean, this is the the obvious and most likely outcome for, you know, a military militarized nation, a nation that is strapped for cash in just about every uh, industry and every avenue, save the military. Yeah, so that wraps up the second episode of the Extra Environmentalist podcast. That was another great episode, Justin. Yeah, I, I had fun talking about the Inquisition, economic collapse, 
all the usual things. Just all in a day's podcast. That's what we do here at the Extra Environmentalist. We bring up all that controversial, taboo stuff that nobody else really wants to touch. We yeah. get right into it and get our faces dirty. In fact, I can't wait to get our first angry comment. So I really hope someone who is not open-minded at all is listening to this podcast and gets very enraged by some of the things that I have read from and you have read from today. We should probably make a shout out to our first commenter on our blog, Rebecca Ralph. Thank you, Rebecca, for your comment. You're our first one. And I'm excited to read more comments. So uh, if you listen to this episode and you've been enraged by our commentary that we read from Joe Pageant on America's political class system, please send us an email at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com or go to the website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com and leave us a comment. You can also search on iTunes for Extra Environmentalist and you'll find us right away. And leave a comment on there. Give us a rating that uh, is completely indicative of your feeling of the podcast. So hopefully you are not a uh, Catholic liberal, which is quite possible. But even if you are, Seth and I do not necessarily hold those views. We just read from pieces that we found interesting. What, do you, what would you say our demographic of this show is, Justin? What, what all two people? Or... <laughs> <laughs> well on that note we will sign off i hope you have enjoyed another our episode and hope look forward to the next one my two hermit crabs there you go there you go that's a good sign off